there. Uh, bienvenidos. Welcome into this week's episode of the show before the show podcast, the official podcast of minor league baseball from MILB.com. I am Tyler Mon, Sam Dykstra in snowy New York City. Is it snowed there? We haven't heard anything about it. When it snows on the East Coast, we never hear anything. I'm sorry. Listen, there are a lot of us in this city. We all like to share things. We are all New Yorkers. You know this. We like to yell what's going on in our lives at all times. Hey, so, it's yeah. snowing here. Yeah. <laughs> I was trying to walk here, and then there was snow. What the heck? Um, I'm out from New York. Terrible. I, can make, I can make those jokes. I, I I live here, and I can't really make those jokes <laughs> because it's offensive to somebody, including myself. Um, but yeah, no, it it it's uh, it was good because I keep I kept telling people like I wanted it to snow. It's you know I was worried that climate change was hitting us much quicker than it ever has, and uh, than we thought it would, and. We were getting so little snow this year. I thought winter was going to pass us by, but no, it just came all of it. All, all of once. it at once. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. It seems like it's been uh, a fun couple of days. I have enjoyed being able to taunt all of you. It's been 65 in Denver and perfect the last two days. So I have been, I have been enjoying that of posting pictures of me and my dog sitting outside, reading a book, going on nice walks. That's been nice. Yeah, I know. You're the one who's supposed to be in the mountain time zone here. Right. And yet you're the one just frolicking free, like people I talk to in California or Florida. And they're just like, yeah, oh, wow, snow, huh? And it's like, yes, we have. I, I'm amazed you don't have any. We've had a rough week in this time zone, okay, when it comes to yeah, it's true. baseball. We will get there. Time zone. We will get uh, there. Very excited to get to it. Well, hey, welcome into this week's episode of the show before the show. He is Sam. I am Tyler. And uh, thanks for hanging out with us at MILB.com or through uh, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, wherever you found us. You can give us a rating and a review and a subscription if you would like and get in touch with the show podcast at MILB.com. We got a lovely offer the other day through the email address for uh, some what seemed to be very real and functional pizza ovens, which, you know, if we ever decide to branch out and open a chain of, uh, of pizza locations, I guess we're, we're set. We got an email that said, uh, dear blank, no name. It's really nice to contact with you. This is Nick from Wangzhou NNL Furniture Company Limited, China. Although I noticed that his email address is from a, a Japan domain, but they're their quality pizza oven outdoor barbecue cabinet exporter. Did you sign us up for this? I didn't, but had I known about it, maybe <laughs> I would have done it back in March. Like this would have been very helpful when That's we true. were trying to plan for months and months on end of being at home. That is like true. now I know how to cook various different things, but if I had a pizza oven, it would have just been all pizza all the time. for the last This is month. like the Seinfeld episode when Kramer wants to open a make your own pizza place where you have people just shoving the pizzas into the ovens themselves, which seems very smart for just regular human beings to do. Maybe that's what we'll do. We'll open up a nice sidewalk pizza cafe with these outdoor pizza ovens and people can, you know, make their own pizzas or burn themselves horribly, whatever will work. Well, maybe not the latter. It seems like a smart plan. Just give yeah. people their own pizza ovens. Yeah. Uh, but you, like the good folks at NNL Furniture Company, whatever it is, can uh, get in touch with this podcast at MILB.com because we know that there are a lot of questions out there about what is coming up in the structure of baseball in 2021 and uh, how it will look. And we are here to answer all of those things for you as we get started on this week's episode of the show before the show. And where we are going to start is... It appears spring training is on deck. Conversations between Major League Baseball and the MLB Players Association this week. Major League Baseball has now informed players to report to spring training and get ready for an on-time start to the season. Uh, everything going according to the initially drawn-up schedule. That came after conversations in which Major League Baseball proposed a slightly shortened regular season to 154 games with full pay for 162 games for players, but also... Universal DH expanded postseason, the stuff that the players union uh, turned down. There was a lot of conversation uh, around why the players union did not counter that proposal from Major League Baseball, which I learned by reading through some stuff from uh, from some labor folks on social media and things that were written that the Players Association can't really do that. Um, there were some conversations from national writers like John Heyman of, well, why wouldn't the Players Association come back and suggest their own things? Well, based on the way the CBA is structured, they can't really do that. Um, so the Players Association said, no, let's just go forward with things as they are uh, set to be right now. And so with that, it looks like we're right on the verge of spring training, as crazy as that kind of feels. 
Yeah, I mean, the, the important thing to remember is that there is a CBA in place. Last right. year, both sides came to an agreement on, on what things would look like. But what eventually happened was just the commissioner setting the schedule, um, which was established under the CBA. Uh, but this time around, if they were to renegotiate, if they were, you know, the MLB can come to the Players Association, try to say like, hey, let's do 154 games, let's do a delay, let's do multiple double headers to make up time, expanded postseason to potentially make up money, um, universal DH, which seemed fairly popular or you know could eventually happen down the road. Let's push that up to this year. Uh, if the PA was going to negotiate that, that would open up the entire CBA and who knows what would come of that. So instead of doing that, they said no, we're going to turn down this suggestion. Um, we're going to continue forward with the plan that we have. That means as of now, and who knows, we are still in the middle of the pandemic. Things could change as they have, as we learned last year in spring training. But uh, as of now, it's looking like camps are going to open around February 17th for most teams. That is two weeks from when we are recording this. Uh, pitchers and catchers are going to report. There's going to be a little bit of a delay until position players report just because there is COVID intake that is involved there. And you don't want everybody getting around each other before they can be tested appropriately and things can be shaken out. But there have been truck days the past couple, you know, over the last week. Um, equipment is being sent to Arizona and Florida to prepare for that. We are getting some non-roster invites uh, coming in already. I know the A's have announced theirs. The Rays officially announced that Wander Franco, the number one overall prospect in baseball, will be a non-roster invitee this year. No surprise there. Uh, the Pirates announced their full slate of non-roster invitees on Tuesday after news broke that spring training was going to continue on schedule. Uh, we're, we're going to reiterate that it sounds like right now uh, the lower levels and guys who were not you know, invited to major league spring training, that might be pushed off deeper into March. Uh, but in terms of big league spring training getting going and grapefruit league play and cactus league play, it sounds like that's continuing forward. So, um, you know, who knows what that's going to potentially mean here for free agent signings. Maybe that's going to be kicked into overdrive. We're certainly going to find out which top prospects are going to be officially invited uh, to major league camps. Like I mentioned, Juan Franco is already there. Uh, Gonzalez and Priester from the Pittsburgh Pirates system. Those guys got invited as well. More big names will follow. Um, so follow the site, go to the site to see which of your favorite top prospects will be in big league strict training. But yeah, it's, it seems like it's going to be right on our doorstep here in two weeks. And we're actually going to get to talk to talk about baseball that's ongoing uh, here very, very shortly. Which is very exciting. And uh, there is uh, one member of the baseball community who will join the show coming up here in a little bit. Kevin Howard, who is the new executive director of player development for the New York Mets, uh, getting set to start his first year as that uh, position for uh, the Mets. He came over from Cleveland, was just uh, hired for that position as of a couple of weeks ago. And we'll talk with him a little bit about um, the, the starts of this season and how teams are kind of getting geared up to dive in for 2021. Uh, the new MLB pipeline top 100 list is out. Organizational top thirties are coming as well for 2021. Uh, no change of the top, no surprise there. Uh, but Sam, your impressions from this new top 100 for 2021 with Wander Franco leading the way. Yeah. So let, let's just go through the top 10 here real quick. Number one is Wander Franco. Number two is Adley Rutschman, Orioles catcher. Number three is Spencer Torkelson, uh, Detroit Tigers corner infielder. Four and five are both outfielders from the Mariner system and Jared Kelnick and Julio Rodriguez in that order. Mackenzie Gore at six, Bobby Witt Jr. at seven, CJ Abrams at eight, Key Brian Hayes at number nine, and Nate Pearson at 10. Um, one thing you might note about that top 10 is that there are only two pitchers uh, in Nate Pearson and Mackenzie Gore. One thing that stands out to me about this list is really the only players we got to play, see play and get data back on, at least public facing data, uh, were guys who played in the majors. And I thought maybe a 6-0 Sanchez who pitched really well for the Marlins last year or Ian Anderson who looked at least looked the part right now of a number two starter in the major leagues. I thought those guys would jump maybe into the top 10. Instead, they're at number 15 and number 18 as of right now. Um, Casey Mize, somebody who did pitch in the majors and went the other way, didn't look quite up to the standard that we expected him to. He's at number 11. Uh, Christian Pache saw the majors last year. Here's a, he's at 12. So it doesn't seem like the guys at pipeline 
really let the major league season influence them too much. Brian Hayes, I mentioned there at number nine, he took a huge jump over, uh, you know, what was a very stellar one month of the majors for him. He really turned around his offensive display. The the glove we know is, is gold glove caliber. Um, but for Franco still to still be there, Adley Rutschman to still be there, Spencer Torkelson, none of those guys played in the majors. Kelnick and Rodriguez, we got great reports out of them, out of Mariners alternate site, but we didn't get to see them put that on display in the majors. So it, a lot of these guys, we have yet to see what they can really do at that top level. We're going to find out in 2021. I feel like Franco is certainly in line for a major league debut. I think Kelnick will get there. I think Gore will get there for sure. Hayes has already been there. Pearson's already been there. Um, so I, I can't wait until we can talk about these guys and and show what they've done on the field and, and see officially where they took their game uh, in 2020. But it, this list, for the most part, should feel fairly similar to where we left things at, at the end of 2020, just because a lot of what happened uh, was behind closed doors and we can't see them rise through a system. We didn't see anybody go to double A AA or triple A. Uh, in that way. So a little bit familiar feeling here, but still some pop-up names to, to go through if you want to check out the full top 100 at MLB.com. All right, let's do it. <laughs> All right. So Tyler, as you, as we previously mentioned in this segment, uh, some big things happened in the mountain time zone and in the central time zone this week. We'll start out with the good things. If you are a Cardinals fan, uh, you now can call Nolan Arenado your third baseman. Uh, the Cardinals acquired the multiple all-star, multiple gold glover, arguably the best defensive uh, third baseman we have in the game. Matt Chapman might have to say something to say about that still. Nolan Arenado, one of the best third basemen in the game, heading to St. Louis, a package of prospects heading back to Colorado. Tyler, nobody knows the Rocky system maybe as well as you do. Uh, what was your take on what the Rockies got back in this trade? I know you and the entire state of Colorado and parts of others surrounding states are upset that Arenado has shipped over to St. Louis, but in terms of what they got back, uh, what were your feelings on that? Well, it's certainly not what you would expect the package to be for uh, a, a perennial all-star. I think a five-time all-star an eight-time gold glove winner, um, especially in light of the fact that the Rockies have committed. If Nolan Arenado does not opt out of his contract, they've committed $50 million in cash considerations to pay the St. Louis Cardinals to have him play for them, um, which he has said he's not planning on opting out. Now, obviously that could change, um, but the Rockies did get back uh, a package of four prospects, which was headlined by uh, Elaris Montero, who is now the seventh ranked prospect in the Colorado system uh, and is a third base prospect. He is one of three consecutively ranked third base prospects in the Rockies organization uh, sandwiched between as of our end of 2020 rankings, uh, Aaron Shunk, who was a draft selection for the Rockies in the second round of 2019 out of Georgia um, and Colton Welker, who is a long time, feels like a long time uh, third base prospect for the Rockies. He was taken in the fourth round in 2016 uh, out of high school. Um, so you get Montero who seems to be the, the prize of this package, at least from the, the prospect standpoint, um, Austin Gomber, the only major league piece who shifted uh, to the Rockies in the deal. Um, Tony Losey, who is a right-handed pitching prospect is now the number 15 prospect uh, in the Rockies organization and Mateo Gill, who is the son of former major leaguer, Benji Gill. Uh, he's the other ranked one. There's also unranked right-handed pitcher, Jake Summers, uh, who joins the Rockies organization. And uh, to say that it is a light return in a trade like this for a player like this, I think is being kind. Um, ordinarily, I think you look at a trade and there's at least one contrarian to say, no, this trade was actually good for the team that everybody is saying it was bad for. And here is why I have not seen a single take like that on this trade. Um, that is not to, um, you know, to talk down about these prospects, but I think shipping out a guy who's on a hall of fame trajectory in his career and acquiring a, a package of, mostly lower ranked prospects or unranked prospects um, leaves you scratching your head. And there's certainly a lot about the Rockies organization that leaves people scratching their heads lately. Um, Montero has the potential, I think, to be an impact bat at the major league level. He's 6'3", 235 already. I know there are some thoughts out there that he may grow out of the position at third base, um, but 
could shift over to first, could play a corner outfield spot theoretically. Offense is his biggest key. Um, he's a, a guy who can grow into a good amount of power. He's got a 55 grade uh, for his power tool, 50 grade for his hit tool uh, on the major league scouting scale, 20 to 80 through MLB pipeline. Uh, but strikes out a ton. He made it to double A in 2019, struck out 30% of his plate appearances. Um, the Rockies uh, social media account trying to kind of sell this deal to people said that Elrys Montero was knocking on the door of the major leagues. Uh, well, he played 59 games at double A two years ago and posted an OPS of 552. So I would hardly call that knocking on the door of the major leagues. Tony Losey, I think is a really interesting um, piece in this deal because He's a guy who worked as a starter and a reliever in college at Georgia, um, pitched primarily in relief in 2019 in his first year uh, in the Cardinals organization after he was drafted in the third round of that year's draft. It seems like with his build, he's listed at 6'3 and about 240. He's a guy who could probably end up touching triple digits with his fastball. He already pretty regularly revs it up to 98. If you use him as a reliever, um, that's probably a, a velocity that's going to see some jump. Uh, and then Mateo Gill, who I think really the thing that stands out most about him is how polished he is across the board, especially for being such a young guy. Um, but the son of a former major leaguer, he was a third round pick in 2018, still just 20 years old. Seems like maybe not uh, one outstanding tool, but a lot of very good tools for him. Uh, but he's still very, very far away. He's only 20 years old. Um, aside from that, there are so many questions about this deal uh, from every vantage point. Uh, the Rockies got a a package of guys that I think, you know, at least in the the outlook for Montero and for Losi, you could see them on a major league roster within the next couple of years. Um, you know, Gill is kind of a, a coin flip. I know the guys on MLB Pipeline on their podcast were saying the other day, there is not a single person in this trade that you would think if they don't make it to the major leagues, it would be a big surprise. Um, and that certainly is not uh, what you would have expected out of a trade for uh, a guy who's won eight straight gold gloves to start his career and is, is probably headed to the Hall of Fame someday. So it's uh, – it's an interesting one to say the least. And especially for a system that is, uh, is pretty weak right now uh, in terms of its overall talent. I know most uh, prospect and, and system evaluators have the Rockies as a bottom five, if not a bottom three system uh, in baseball right now. And, you know, you would have figured you're shipping out Nolan Arnato and you're sending him to a team like the St. Louis Cardinals. Are you going to get Nolan Gorman in return for him? Are you going to get Jordan Walker in return for him? Who's another third baseman the Rock or the, the Cardinals took in the first round this year. Uh, and that did not happen. So uh, the Cardinals with four top 100 prospects, they did not have to include any of those in this deal. Montero was the only top 10 prospect, according to Pipeline, before the trade who was shipped. And uh, a lot more questions than answers, I would say, on the, the Rocky side of the equation. Yeah, and this is really continuing what I feel like we've said multiple times and like in consecutive weeks here, when trades have happened this offseason, it's been broad packages of prospects going back. I mean, outside of like Luis Patino, there we really haven't had like a top, top prospect move despite having some big names yeah. switch sides. Like teams are choosing to accept packages of like, four or five prospects over maybe one or two impact names. Um, that might just be, Hey, we think we can develop these guys better. And if we get a bunch of them, two or two of them can hit. And we like that our chances there better than getting two top 100 guys in which we could go one for two. I don't know. Um, but it, that has been an, an interesting trend, I think in terms of, Hey, some superstars are, are moving. Yeah. But some top prospects aren't what's behind that. And yeah, I do feel like we've every big trade this year, we've tweeted out, well, the team who has traded away its prospects got to hang out to all of their top 100 guys. And that does feel very different this year. I I'm in agreement with that. It's kind of a strange trend among trades this off season. And I, and I wonder how much of that has to do with <clears throat> losing a minor league season. You know, like we have to consider this in in context of everything that's happened. And, um, you know, nobody knows these top 100 prospects better than their own teams at this point. Um, so maybe that, there's something involved in that. But I don't know. We'll have to keep an eye on this and see if this is going to become a larger industry trend going on or once we get everybody on a field again and, and evaluations are flowing all over the place if, if things go back to what we perceive as normal. So with that, we'll wrap up this first segment of this week's episode of the show before the show. But for Mets fans, a great conversation upcoming. Uh, Kevin Howard joins the show, the brand new farm director for the New York Mets to talk about all things Mets, the hiring process, getting started with this job and a whole lot more coming up next.
The New York Mets with uh, a largely restructured front office and staff going into 2021 and beyond. And we are really excited to bring on the guy who is at the head of the minor league side for things with the New York Mets beginning in 2021. The new executive director of player development for the Mets, Kevin Howard, joins the show. Kevin, what's going on? Congrats on the new gig, man. How are you? Oh, I'm, I'm doing great. Thanks a lot for having me. Uh, yeah, it's an exciting time to, to be part of this organization, and I'm, I'm just pumped up to get started. This has been, I would imagine, an extreme whirlwind. Uh, you were just announced to this position uh, a week and a half, uh, 10, 12 days ago, and uh, jumping in to kind of get things started in these first couple of weeks. Is it similar to, you've obviously had a lot of experience in player development, and we'll go through your background, but being a minor leaguer, working on the, the coaching side and the player development side in the Cleveland organization, for us normal people, we think of a new job and think like, well, that first month, it's like a throwaway. You're just like learning where the copy room is and figuring out what your lunch hour is going to be like. For a job like this, you guys are right on the precipice of starting spring training. Uh, and obviously things are probably going to look different in 2021 on the minor league side for spring training. But what has this first couple of weeks been like for you getting in and getting acclimated? Yeah, I, I think this I think this first couple of weeks for me is kind of seeing where we are, you know, Um you know, evaluating you know, what we're good at, uh, evaluating, you know, maybe some areas that need some attention, um, you know, but, but I'm really just observing and, and trying to meet as many people as I can. Uh, obviously, a, a big part of my job is communication um, and, and to make that communication effective. Um, I'm going to have to have relationships with, with people, with a lot of people. Um, so I think, you know, operation number one, it was just getting on the phone and, and calling people and, and introducing myself and trying to get to know them uh, as best I can over the phone. Um, so, you know, when I do need to communicate, that communication could be more effective. Kevin, from the standpoint of learning kind of the the culture and the processes of a new system, what is that challenge like for you? Obviously, you're going to get to put your stamp on so many things now in this role in the organization, but you're you're moving into a system that's had established ways of doing things for a while, I would imagine. How much of, of that learning curve plays into these first few weeks where you're just trying to get a handle on how things have been done around there? Yeah, I, I, I don't think there's a lot of that. And, and I don't think there's a lot of it because there's a new GM. Um, you know, we have a, a, another farm director of, of initiatives uh, and Jeremy Barnes, who came over from the Astros. Uh, we have a new hitting director, um, Hugh Quattlebaum. He came over from the Mariners. Uh, so I, I think it's more been the conversation amongst the, the leadership group on, on where we want to go with, with the culture. Um, so I, I don't really think there, there's too much of learning uh, what's been here. I think it's um, just talking about where we want to go and, and how we're going to get there. And, and to go back to what you were talking about with early conversations and, and basically just getting the ball rolling on that, who were some of your first phone calls when you were trying to introduce to yourself to people? Was it people in the front office, players, coaches, like – where in the phone tree are you right now as you're getting acclimated? Well, I think to, to you know, to all the guys I just mentioned, um, obviously Zach Scott, um, uh, I've probably had the most uh, contact with him and, and just talking about, you know, where we want to go um, with a number of things. Um, Jeremy Barnes, um, we're kind of working together to, to spearhead uh, this whole thing. You know, the way our, our positions kind of work together is there's a lot of stuff to, to get done and, um, the stuff that, you know, complements his strengths, he's, a, he's tackling and spearheading and, and the, the things that complement my strengths, I'm spearheading. Um, so I, I talk to him a lot. Um, and then the other two guys uh, would be um, the hitting director, Hugh Quattlebaum. Um, you know, like I said, he's new as well, and, and um, he's a great communicator. Um, and, and we've had so many conversations on where we want to go with the hitting department. Um, and then a guy that I haven't mentioned yet, um, Ricky Menhold. Um, he's the, the pitching coordinator and assistant uh, big league pitching coach. Um, and he's been unbelievable. Uh, he's an he's a unbelievable communicator, um, very knowledgeable, very organized. Um, having a guy like him uh, to, to have everything in place and, and all the conversations already organized on, on what we need to talk about uh, the minute I stepped into the organization – it's been a it's been a, a real blessing to to have so many strong leaders in place.
Mm. And I'm sure a lot of these conversations, as you've said, are, you know, seeing what everybody brings to the table and discussing, you know, where you want to go together as a group and putting everything on the table. Um, but when you have those conversations and it comes to you in terms of where you want to take things, what your philosophies are going to be, again, based on your time in the Cleveland system or even your own minor league career, what are you, what are your suggestions or what are your philosophies? Like what, what are your talking points when you have these discussions with these other coordinators and directors? Yeah, so the things that, that, that are important to me, um, it's very easy to articulate because uh, Cleveland's been such a great organization, and I've been so aligned with the way they've gone, gone about their culture um, that these things are, are instilled into the way I've gone about my business the last six years. Um, and, you know, it starts with having a growth mindset. Um, You've got to be able to, to, to continue to better yourself and be open to new ideas. Uh, new ways of doing things, um, you know, and then just goes down the list with, you know, with individual plans for players, players have to be, um, you know, they have to have a process, you know, it, it's about development, right? You got to know where a guy needs to develop and, and how you're going to go about doing that, um, you know, and then it's about being part of a team. Um, you know, I, I think it's important to instill in these players that they're, 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 they need to have a team first approach and they need to, they need to, you know, play for something that's bigger than themselves a lot of times. And, and I really believe that. And I, I believe that a bunch of guys pulling for each other uh, makes it easier on each individual. Uh, and ultimately they'll, they'll, it'll make it easier for them to all, to all reach their goals. Um, so what's good for the players, good for the team. I've always, and, and vice versa. And I've always believed that. Um, so trying to, you know, instill that into our players' minds, I think is important. Kevin, we've talked with uh, other people who are either in, in your position or have moved on from their playing careers into different things in player development. And one of the things um, that always comes up that's an interesting topic of conversation for us is, you know, you finished your playing career uh, not that long ago in, in 2012, and yet it feels like the world is so different now over just nine years um, than what it was for prospects back then. And we've heard, you know, various answers from people who played in the 90s or in the early 2000s or, um, you know, moving into into the last decade. What do you think is the biggest difference for minor leaguers for prospects today from back when you were drafted and you were starting to come up? Yeah, I think the biggest difference is uh, these players today, they need to know the why. Um, you know, back in the days, it was just kind of like my coach said so, so I'll do it. Um, there's so much information out there now. Um, these guys are, are so much more um, exposed to, to knowledge. Um, they can do research on their own. Um, they're so much more educated on, on things that maybe, you know, us as young players wouldn't have been able to access when we were, when we were coming up. So, uh, and if you tell them to have a reason why you want to do it, um, and it's got to make sense to them. Um, so, you know, I, I think that's the big thing for me is that, you know, the process that you do suggest for each player ha has a reason why, and they understand that reason. That it's so fascinating that you say that because you are. I was I was just messaging Sam this. You're the fourth or fifth different either coach or player development person or um, someone in that that type of role, and not just in baseball. Um, who's communicated that to me? I do some some broadcast work uh, in college sports and work with a college basketball team. Our head coach said that exact same thing to me um, either <laughs> last year, or a couple years ago, and you know, a guy who's in a similar position as you played uh, collegiately in the early 2000s, all that type of stuff. And I think for him, sometimes it's a source of frustration, but he also said it really does present a different kind of opportunity to learn how to communicate with kids today. When when you get that uh, that moment where you can tell that a player needs to understand the reason behind something, how do you communicate that? Because I think, um, you know, especially for guys who have played the game, uh, you know, in, in the case of somebody like the, the basketball coach that I know, I think it's it's somewhat frustrating to get in that mindset and be like, just do it. I know what I'm talking about, you know. But for you, right. you know, knowing that it's something that you have to communicate, how do you personally go about doing that? Well, I think it, I think it starts with, you know, having something that's, that's objective, um, you know, so they don't think you're making things up. Right. Um, you know, if you're going to, if you're going to tell them that, uh, you know, they swing and miss too much, well, show them, you know, 
where they are in the league that they're playing at in terms of swing and miss. Um, you know, and the less things that, that they can argue with, for lack of a better term, um, you know, the more they're going to be able to buy into what you're saying. Um, you know, and I think, God, when you're asking me how would I explain it to them, it's like how would I explain it to myself? If I I was a player or I needed to learn something like, you know, these guys are adults. um, And, and, and I talk to them just like I talk to the coaches. Um, There's, there's a level of respect. I think you you have to have um, for any individual when you're explaining anything. Um, And I'd like them to teach me on things that I need to get better at, just like I teach them. So I, I think it's much less of a, you know, I'm the coach, you're the player you need to listen to me because I know better. And I think it's like, hey, let's, you know, we're all trying to get to this spot. Let's try to help each other get there. And, and speaking about that advice, we'll get a little bit into the more specifics with the Mets now. They have a really solid core of young position players uh, in the system. Ronnie Mauricio, Francisco Alvarez, Brett Beatty, Pete Crow Armstrong. I know you're very much in the early days of this job, but how much research have you had to do into these guys and start to formulate a plan? Or is that something you just kind of wait until, you know, you see them at spring training? Like how much video do you look into these guys? How how much are you thinking about them on an individual level already? Well, I think that comes down the road. Um, You know, there's nothing I can do in in two weeks to kind of take the place of people that have been here for, for four years. Uh, so you got to trust your people that are here. Um, you know, I've gotten perspectives from probably six or seven different people that have been around in leadership on, you know, what we think about the players that we have and why. And, and I'm fully trusting what they're telling me. Um, the, the time for, you know, for my evaluation will come um, as I put that time in like they did. Um, so I, I don't put a ton of time into watching video. Uh, I put more time into to talking to the people that have been here um, and asking what they think. Gotcha. So, so in those conversations, then um, one thing that stood out to me this off season, uh, as we've said, this is kind of an off season of turnover in the Mets front office. Part of that starts at the top with Steve Cohen taking off, but when he still had a Twitter account, he's deactivated since, but um, he said this on Twitter, uh, they had a top five farm system talking about the uh, Padres that gave them flexibility to trade for Snell newsflash. The Mets farm system needs to be replenished. Um, that was him talking about the Padres. What is your view of the state of the Mets system right now, based on your conversations with guys who have been around and based on just what you knew before you took the job? Yeah, I haven't really thought about it. Uh, Cause I, for me, it doesn't really matter. Um, you know, it, it could be great. It could be bad. Uh, I think my goal is the same is, is to, to organize things in a way where we can get it to as good of a spot as we can. Um, you know, I've heard like you did that we have great, um, young prospects. Um, I've heard that, you know, possibly we could be thin at the top. Um, but these are all things that, that you hear and and you just got to take people's word for it. Um, as far as my job, doing my job goes, I, I don't really think that it matters, uh, if we're in the top or the bottom. I think that, you know, you're always working to get better. Um, and, and that's kind of what I'm trying to focus on. Kevin, let's talk a little bit about your playing days. You're a, a University of Miami product, um, a guy who played in, in big-time games in your college career, and we'll talk about those some too. But um, then you get in a pro ball and you get to play in a, a handful of different organizations and make your stops throughout the, all the levels of minor league baseball and all that. Um, I know you played uh, internationally. You played in Venezuela in the Winter League, the Dominican Winter League, Mexican Pacific League, which is their Winter League. When you look back on your minor league career, are there any sort of like perfect minor league moments or the things that stand out? If somebody were to ask you, like, give me the the most encapsulating day or game or moment of your career. Um, is there anything that really stands out above the rest as kind of the best story? Ah, that's a good question. You know, it, you, you can't really ever replace playing in the College World Series. Um, so as far as college goes, um, that's something I'll always remember. Omaha is a special place. Uh, I think it's an it's an absolute wonderful thing um, that they do and the show that they put on for these young kids, uh, and it's something that I'll always remember. 
Uh, as far as minor leagues, you know, you, you remember your, your great individual performances. So there's a couple of those that I definitely remember. Um, you know, I, I think an eye-opening year was um, the year I played with the Cardinals. Um, at that time, I felt like uh, they were very advanced as far as um, how on the same page everybody was with their development. Huh. And they were producing a lot of major league players at that time. Um, and, the, and the players I would have conversations with were very much in line with the coaches on, you know, what they were working on and, you know, what they were trying to improve. And, you know, I think some of the organizations I had been with previous, you know, they didn't really have that um, same alignment. So I'll always remember that. I, you know, I, I was able to be on a team that won a championship uh, towards the end of my career in double A. Um, I'll remember that. You know, not only because uh, of all the great players that were on that team, you know, Anthony Ghost, Travis Darno, uh, guys like that, but also because, um, you know, winning a championship is such a gratifying feeling because of all that goes into a season. Um, and, and I hope, you know, every player that, that we coach with the Mets gets to experience that at least once because that's a feeling you'll never forget too. So uh, I think those, those moments stick out the most. This is uh, kind of a selfish question because I've been in the middle of writing up our, our Winter League recaps um, for MILB.com. And, of course, the Caribbean series is going on right now. But I have to ask you about some of your Winter League experience since it is that kind of time of year. Um, you got to play with Mazatlan in the, the Mexican Pacific Winter League in 2011 and 2012. But a couple years before that, actually the year you were going into that season in the Cardinal system, I noticed that at least on your baseball reference page, it has you playing in both the Venezuelan Winter League and the Dominican Winter League. Um, did those happen in the same winter league season and what was the reason behind getting to play in both of those they did they did so <laughs> yeah i'm gonna be completely honest with you so i you know i i put my all into everything as a player and i was playing in venezuela and you know i was i was putting in the effort but to be honest i wasn't playing very well uh and, and my my manager he liked me and he uh he respected the fact that I came down to, to Venezuela and took it serious. You know, I wanted to win, um, but they need to make a change for performance reasons. And he asked me, uh, you know, he said there's a Dominican team that he thought I was a good fit, fit with. Uh, he asked me if I'd like to go down there. Um, so he basically, you know, traded me for, you know, a, bo- a bucket of balls or, or whatever. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> and I got traded to, to the Estrellas in, in, in the Dominican. And I actually played really well down there. Um, so it worked out for everybody. I, and then I ended up uh, uh, facing Liriano, um, and on a, a 2-2 slider, I broke my hammock, the hook to my oh. hammock, and I, and I had to have surgery going into that year with the Cardinals. So, um, you know, it was a roller coaster of, of up and downs there, but, you know, I, I, I'm definitely better for the entire experience. I'm so fascinated by the winter league uh, atmospheres and the markets and the fans and all that type of stuff. Um, and back in, you know, in 2009, 2010, the situation in Venezuela was a little bit more solidified. So those, uh, you know, the league was um, flourishing in a way that obviously this off season has made very difficult, but um, did it surprise you? It's so interesting to hear you say, you know, for performance reasons, they had to make a change. Cause I think a lot of players assume Winter ball, I'll go down, I'll get my at-bats in, you know, whatever it is. But those teams need to win. And, you know, I've talked with guys who are Major League veterans who went down, didn't play that well for a week, and got released, and were, like, getting booed and all that kind of stuff. Like, did it surprise you just how seriously and how fanatical the, the fans and the, the organizations were down there? Yeah, it did, in, 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 you know, in a good way. Um, I, I think it's incredible – uh, how much they care about about their team in, in winning. Um, and I think it's um, such a valuable experience for, you know, any of the Americans to go in that environment um, and, and be able to play for, you know, just for the team and help a team win. I think, you know, winning is a, is a skill. You know, playing to win, preparing to win, that's a skill that's developed, you know, just like anything else. Um, and, it, and it's one of the harder skills to develop. Um, you know, I believe winning is important in the minor leagues. Uh, and I believe that, you know, players that go to those winter ball teams uh, and have an opportunity to be in that culture where, where they care so much about their teams, um, I think it's a really good experience. 
And whether it's winter ball or the college world series, like you mentioned, and we should just throw out there, um, you know, in 2001, your Miami hurricanes beat Stanford 12 to one in the championship game. You yourself went two for four with a walk in that game, but between winter ball and winning a, a college world series and your time in the minors, which was considerably long, you know, how do you take these experiences to players? Do you bring these experiences up in your discussions and say, hey, I've been there? Or do you just draw on your experience and, and leave it be? Uh, I think I think every every relationship you have is different. Um, some players might ask, um, you know, some players might be be going through something similar, um, you know, whether it's mentally or, or with their family uh, that you've been through. Uh, and you can you can draw comparisons that way. Um, I, I think you need to be careful of talking about yourself uh, when you're talking about players. Um, you know, I, I look at it as maybe like a last resort, um, but but it, you know, it definitely does help in some situations more for off the field stuff, I'd say, than on the field. All right. Well, let, let's look forward here. I know it's still early days and, and you're still formulating things and, and plans and, um, you know, organizational philosophies. But if we look forward at the end of 2021, you'll have one, hopefully, you know, knock on wood, one full season of experience under your belt in this system. What kind of imprint do you want to have on Mets prospects from top to bottom? Yeah, that's a good question. You know, I think I want them to have a have a, a goal that that they're convicted to. Um, they're, they're, they really believe um, in in what their goal is to, to improve. Um, and I think that I want them to to have a routine that contributes to that goal on a daily basis. Uh, and I want them to enjoy that process. Um, you know, I, I tell I compare it to like weightlifting. You know, like. I probably haven't lifted weights in six months. And, and if I went in the gym right now, it would be miserable for me, right? I would hate it. And I'd hate tomorrow because I'd be sore. Um, but if I, if I stayed consistent and I stayed on it, I'll get to a point where I can't wait to go work out. And, and that's kind of how I look at it with the, with the process for these guys. It's, it, it's going to be uncomfortable at the beginning. Uh, and that's okay. Um, you have to be mentally strong enough to get through that, that, that stave, stage of uncomfortableness, but, but eventually I want every player to get to the, the, the point where they enjoy the process of getting better. Um, they're having fun with it. They're excited to come to the field. Um, they're excited for their bullpens. They're excited to go to the cage uh, and they can't wait to compete because they're so prepared and they've improved so much. Um, that, that's kind of how I look at it. And, and that's what I'm going to work to, to try to try to do for every player. How do I get to the point where I can't wait to work out? <laughs> That's more of a philosophical yeah, question. You don't have to answer that, Kevin. That's just you got to take one this rhetoric. All right, we'll, we'll we'll end on on this one, uh, Kevin. It's, we'll snap back to the present and the very short term future. Um, as as kind of been announced and quasi confirmed this week with the back and forth between MLB and MLB players association sounds like spring training is going to start on time. We know minor league spring training could be delayed a little bit, but where are you guys in the status for your plans for spring training and, and getting guys into camp down in St. Lucie? Yeah. So we're prepared, you know, we still haven't heard any official official word, but we're prepared. Um, you know, the roster is, is, obviously fluid because, um, you know, I think we, we had to designate a guy today that got claimed. Uh, I, I think, you know, that kind of stuff is always going to, going to adjust, you know, the last, you know, three, four or five players, uh, on, on the pitching and the position player side. Um, but you know, we're really close. Um, I think the, the process of putting that together has been unbelievable. I think the people here have been unbelievable at, um, communicating and, and, and going through that, that process to put these things together. So uh, I, have, I have no worries at all that, that when we need to make things final, we'll, we'll be completely prepared. Well, Kevin, a lot of really exciting stuff ahead for you and for this organization. And uh, really just, I'm sure you would feel this way even more than than we do. But the day when it's just like you're in St. Lucie and guys are working out and they're on the field throwing and getting ready and they're setting up the turtle for BP or whatever it is, like 
I think all of us are dying so much to just get to that day where it's like, okay, let's do this again. Uh, Cause it has been a very long year and a half without it. And uh, we can't be more excited for you and, uh, and for this next step for you and for Mets fans and uh, congrats on the new gig, man. And enjoy every minute of it as we get close to some real baseball again. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me guys. Crossing into the month of February, as uh, hard as it is to believe, we are joined by our good pal, Benjamin Hill, who joins us from what looks to be very sunny New York City today. Uh, how much snow did you end up getting at your place, Ben? Uh, well, fortunately, in my place, we got zero, uh, thanks <laughs> to the uh, walls and roofs and whatnot. Um, but outside... That means yeah, they're I'm, working. Yeah. <laughs> um, probably about the same amount Sam Dykstra got, who was... Uh, a neighbor of sorts. I mean, in a very generalized sense. So what, what would you say, Sam, like 14 inches, 15? That's inches? actually what I was saying. Yeah. 14, 15, 16, something like that. Probably, probably a foot and a half. Yeah. So it's, it is a little sunny today, but it's more just the blinding white uh, snow. Yeah. Reflection of the snow coming through the window. And uh, I like it. There's a sheen. There's a sheen to the world right now. I like that. That's a good description. Um, it, it doesn't necessarily feel like baseball weather, but uh, baseball weather is coming soon. And we are uh, hoping to start talking about the run up to the the real minor league season. And while we are still in this period of waiting, Ben's got a great story that is up on the site right now about the Pensacola Blue Wahoos uh, in Pensacola, Florida, who have done a, uh, a new initiative to try to help their seats feel a little less lonely. It's been uh, relatively empty in the ballpark, not completely empty in Pensacola because they've been renting the ballpark out on Airbnb and doing that kind of stuff, but um, trying to get the seats some company, I guess we'll say. Explain, Ben. Yeah, I mean, the Pensacola Blue Wahoos, that's a team we've talked about uh, more than most during this, you know, endless offseason. Uh, the season that wasn't, uh, you know, Tyler, due to what you you know, a lot you mentioned, uh, they've had a lot of uh, ballpark events, the Airbnb rentals, the disc golf course designed by Bubba Watson. So they've stayed in the news pretty well. This is an initiative that I don't think they're pushing as much and uh, is inherently absurd. So when I saw it, just kind of trying to stay true to myself, uh, the sort of writer I was, you know, when I first broke in all young and hungry, writing about the kind of dumbest things <laughs> I could find in the world of minor league baseball. And I miss them, uh, especially now, you know, with uh, schedules aren't out yet. And so we don't have promo schedules and we're not really banding about uh, all the pop culture references will appear in promos. Uh, some of the times the real dumb stuff is harder to find, but I'd say this qualifies as a dumb stuff in a good way. Uh, but Pensacola, it was really spearheaded by two guys, particularly this one guy, Adam. Um, he said he was walking through the ballpark one day and just started thinking about the seats and how cold and sad and lonely they must be because uh, no one's been sitting on them for over 500 days. And uh, so he kind of spearheaded him and uh, another guy, Dan, spearheaded the creation of a kind of uh, heart tugging, you know, pulled the heartstrings, uh, you know, Sarah McLaughlin style uh, PSA, you know, kind of being like, please think of the seats. They need you uh, adopt a seat today, you know, buy a 2021 season ticket. And, uh, you know, in being so empathetic toward the seats and thinking about them and their plight, uh, they started to give the seats names. So one thing led to another. I mean, the first two names they gave seats, uh, you know, located in section 100, I believe, right behind home plate. Uh, they named two seats, Cheesecake and Pickle, uh, just because that seemed like good names for seats. And then one thing leads to another, and they've now uh, named 1,800 seats in the ballpark um, that are all available to be, quote, adopted as a season ticket purchase for 2021. So I talked to these guys about uh, how they came to name 1,800 seats in the ballpark. Um, I think going forward, when you buy a season ticket, you'll get a certificate that has the name of the seat and maybe a little story behind it. Um, it became a staff-wide effort to really try to name all these seats because, you know, coming up with 1,800 names, that's uh, quite a lot. Uh, so it started off maybe straightforward, you know, players in Blue Wahoo's history or names of defunct teams or, you know, just sea creatures and wildlife, but, you know, they needed more and more. So they sent me their name spreadsheet, their seat name spreadsheet, and maybe not all these will actually be used, but the, the categories got more and more ridiculous as they went on. There's one category that, that is um, the name of hot nightclubs named by Stefan on SNL. So they've named seats things like, I don't know, like taste and banam or smush <laughs> or whatever. So theoretically you could buy a season ticket uh, for the blue Wahoos and uh, 
you have a seat with one of their names. There's also a category uh, of things named by Weird Al in the song eBay, which is, of course, a typically ridiculous uh, you know, Weird Al song in which he names all these things he bought on eBay. So again, there's on this list of seat names, there's a seat named, for instance, Dr. Dre's Kleenex. <laughs> so again, you could maybe buy a season ticket seat and have it be named uh, Dr. Dre's Kleenex. Maybe not all these will come to fruition. Maybe they might switch the names up to be a little more palatable, but I like the weird. And uh, talk about a pandemic front office project. You start feeling bad for the seats and name almost 2,000 of them uh, as a way to have them adopted by people who uh, will put their rear ends in them. And they're saying, you know, these seats, they need your rear end. They miss your rear end. Specifically, uh, so yours so, specifically. Did they? Do yeah. we know how many of the eighteen hundred have been adopted so far? Oh, I think this just started. So, um, it's I'm not sure if any stages. specifically named seats have yet been adopted. They've just announced it. Um, but you know, when you do adopt it, uh, you'll get a certificate with the the name of it, and uh, you know, it's kind of a funny selling point. So, as ridiculous as it is, I do think it's kind of an idea that could be adopted by other other teams and uh, just trying to say, here's the view from the seat. Here's what it's named, you know, just something quirky that gets people a little more interested in being like, oh, I want to see what these seats are named, or I want to sit in the condiment section and, you know, sit in mustard or relish or whatever the case may be. Who knows? At least it gave me something dumb to write about uh, during a time when minor league baseball is not providing the dumb and my whole career, I've counted on it to provide the dumb and it's been very non dumb times. I miss it. Well, I mean, as the king of puns, we got to ask you, what would you name a seat? What would I name a seat? That's a very good question. Um, and I'm trying to come up with a really good uh, pun because you set it up that way. And now I'm just uh, it doesn't have to be mine here. I'm dying up here. Sweating. It's 21st century. So, you know, if we put it to a pole or something, people would just name it Seedy McSeat Face. Yes, it would be something like that. I think I'd go with, um, I don't know. I can't think of a single thing. I don't ever want to name a seat because I will fail at this endeavor. And I'm having new respect for what they did in Pensacola. I mean, you're going to be up tonight. And before this podcast comes out, you're going to come up with like 1800 ideas on your own. I'm sure. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. Yeah. These are the things that keep me awake at night. Trust me. Right. Trust me. So, uh, I'll let you know. Hit me up on Twitter tomorrow, everybody, and I'll have some great seed names. There you go. Well, Ben, you have another story you're working on now. It'll be up by the time people hear it. But uh, we touched a little bit on Hank Aaron's minor league career, but you went, you're going into another story on somebody else involved in that. We talked about his time uh, with Jacksonville. This is actually the manager of that team in the Sally League, Ben Garrity. Um, what can you tell us about what you've learned about his managerial time and what kind of minor league character he was about half century ago at this point? Yeah, Ben Garrity. Um, yeah, I wrote the article on Hank Aaron that ran a couple of weeks ago, his minor league career. He only spent two seasons in the minors. And as happens, you know, as often happens when you're exploring minor league history, there's a lot of rabbit holes to go down. And um, in learning about his 1952 season with the Jacksonville Braves, in which he was one of five players who broke the color barrier, um, I was really intrigued by the manager of that Braves team, a man named Ben Garrity, um, who just seemed like a very interesting person for a lot of reasons. And uh, so I kind of made a note of him, maybe someone I'd want to get back to and uh, learn more about. And lo and behold, I got an email earlier this week from Michael Garrity, his great nephew, who shared a personal essay he recently wrote about Hank Aaron and Hank Aaron's connection to his great uncle, Ben Garrity, and said, hey, I have more stories to share. And I said, hey, great. So I talked to Michael Garrity about um, you know Ben Garrity's place and family lore and what he meant to the game of baseball. And he's a really interesting guy. Um, he was a player who actually went straight from Villa from Jersey City, uh, went straight from uh, Villanova University right to the Brooklyn Dodgers in 1936, but really didn't log much major league playing time on the whole. Um, in 1946, a decade after he made his major league debut, uh, he had signed with the Spokane Indians and. Um, you know, within a month or six weeks of being in Spokane, uh, he was part of that uh, 1946 bus crash in which the team bus of the Spokane Indians uh, veered off a snowy, curvy, twisty highway, tumbled down an embankment into a valley. Nine players died, and uh, it's one of the worst accidents in you know American sports history. 
And Ben Garrity obviously survived that accident, but he was forever traumatized. His playing career, he, you know, he had some head wounds and obviously psychological trauma. He barely played after that, but he transitioned into being a manager uh, and um, ended up, you know, first in the Cleveland Indians organization, then uh, New York Giants organization, uh, and then the Braves organization, first Boston, then Milwaukee. And uh, while managing in Jacksonville for the, uh, the then Boston Braves, uh, he did manage that team that had Hank Aaron. And, um, you know, Hank Aaron would talk about this and um, the way it's, uh, you know, others um, have written about it as well. And uh, Michael Garrity, his great, great nephew, tells stories about it. Is Ben Garrity, um, even in the, uh, you know, the Deep South, Jim Crow, South Atlantic League in the early 50s, he stood up for Hank Aaron and for the other black players on the team, Horace Garner and Felix Mantilla. He would bring them into white restaurants and demand that they be seated and leave. Uh, if they would not, he would stand up to the racist abuse of fans during the games. He would visit the black players at their hotels or boarding houses and just hang out and, you know, talk to them. And um, really interesting guy uh, to have gone through, you know, horrible tragedy, including his father dying when he was a kid in a horrible accident, uh, the Spokane bus tragedy, and uh, then becoming a really, really well-regarded manager who was known for having like a deep, you know, psychological connection to his players to being selfless to fighting for them at all costs and you can't help but wonder how much of that was informed by you know his own sense of his own mortality and the fact that life is short and that um you know if he wasn't going to be a player he needed to put all he had into making the players he oversaw to be good um and uh he was also drank too much and an alcoholic and who knows how much of that was informed by the fact that he as a manager he had to ride buses as a part of his job and he had survived a horrific bus crash. And so he drank a lot, his health declined. He was always in the running to be a major league coach or especially manager, never made it, died at age 50. Um, and uh, you know, that's that. <laughs> but in those 50 years, he influenced a lot of people. It was great talking to a family member and getting more about a story. And it gave me an excuse to explore more about someone who I've been really intrigued by when writing about Hank Aaron in that 1952 with the Jacksonville Braves. There's a quote on his uh, Sabre bio from Hank Aaron, and it says, quote, he was the greatest manager I ever played for, perhaps the greatest manager who ever lived, and that includes managers in the big leagues. I've never played for a guy who could get more out of every ball player than he could. He knew how to communicate with everybody and to treat every player as an individual. That is incredible. It's one thing to just hear that from a, a player who, you know, kind of owes something to somebody who did something for him in their career. But to hear it from Hank Aaron, who played as lengthy of a career as he did in as many different stops in the Negro Leagues and in the minor leagues and in the major leagues as he did, that's a that's a very um, unparalleled type of quote for one of the game's all-time greats to give out about somebody who the vast majority of baseball fans have probably never heard of. Yeah, absolutely. And such an American story, a, uh, uh, you know, Irish Catholic uh, guy from Jersey um, looking out for a teenage black kid in the deep South playing baseball, integrating a league and the sort of bonds they formed. And uh, it's kind of hard to imagine uh, what that atmosphere was like. I mean, I would love to learn more about it and just think it just very unique era in American history and uh, really gives you an appreciation for Hank Aaron, what a life he lived and that, you know, he was with us till just last month and he had those stories and he was a repository of those memories and, um, you know, they're not going to be around much longer uh, in terms of living memories of the people who knew these people like Ben Garrity. And I think it's important to write about it and tell the stories and uh, find ways to connect. And I'm always grateful to have a chance to do that. Yeah, I think that's very well said. And I think it's also uh, an indication of, you know, we've lived through a, a year plus now of social strife and of such difficulty top to bottom, it feels like uh, across our societal landscape. But I think it's very important to remember that this history is not that long ago either. You know, when you talk about somebody like Hank Aaron just passing away a couple of weeks ago and how he really was living history, uh, this stuff did not happen that long ago. And it's a, a pretty incredible story about Ben Garrity that's uh, coming to the site. The story about Pensacola on the site, Ben, of course, with uh, some great pieces about the Hall of Famers who have left us uh, over the last year plus on the site as well. And you can find that all at MILB.com slash Ben's Biz. And uh, the hair is looking magnificent again today, man. Thanks. Hey, thank you guys. And you know what I'd name a seat? I would name a seat pencil because I'm holding one right now. It's the first thing I saw. Hey, it makes as much sense as cheesecake and pineapple, whatever it was. No, you got to call it pencil Kona. Pencil, pencil cola. Pencil cola. Oh, man, go. I missed it. Not to be confused with Pepsi cola. 
Pencil cola. Yeah, not this. Because that's what was happening earlier. I was trying to be too clever. But anything can be the name of a seat. It can be Sam, Tyler, pencil, water bottle, Bluetooth speaker, Ben. Thanks, Ben. Thanks, guys. And that'll just about do it for this week's episode of the show before the show. We uh, last week started doing the show on video for the first time. Sam always has these great backdrops. Last week was City Field. Today is. Did you take this picture today? Is this Prospect Park? Yeah, this is Prospect Park. This is like right I down the I follow you on Instagram. I'm, yeah. <laughs> well, that probably is telling that I take too many pictures of the park that I no, have. No, it's a good to. thing. It's a good thing you, to live by. People can build a 3D happy. model based on all the pictures. <laughs> But Sam always has these cool backgrounds. Uh, I, as I've mentioned, you know, many times on the show, I do the podcast inside of a converted closet in my office that I made in a, like a little recording studio, but I never use a background. So today I finally decided to use one. So I grabbed the still shot of the, uh, the establishing shot of the apartment building in which the main characters live in the British sitcom peep show that has become a thing uh, for me and you and our buddy, Josh Jackson, who got us both hooked onto this. So I am now at Apollo house in Croydon in London. That's where I am. <laughs> which is really just strange to see you just like in front of an apartment building. Is it, you know, like I'm trying to choose these night. Like if you're going to have to I, look at my mug, you might as well look at something nice behind me. No, you, you have to look at this brutalist 1970s, ugly apartment building. Yeah. You're, it looks like you're just standing in a car park <laughs> in the United Kingdom. That's where I do all of my podcasts from. Yeah. I just stand outdoors in front of random apartment buildings in the UK. The acoustics uh, are surprisingly good. though. I know it's very impressive, right? Yeah. Well, before we get out of here, uh, time for a nationwide prospect fact of the week with yours own Sam Dykstrom. Yeah, this one's probably going to sadden or anger or get some sort of emotion out of Tyler Brown. I'm going to say it anyway. <laughs> oh, uh, great. I'm excited. Well, if we're going to talk about Nolan Arenado, let's throw it back to his prospect days. And the first year I had this job was 2012. And I remember Arenado was pretty well hyped uh, going into that season. He was a second round pick, uh, you know, 59th overall in 2009, but it built up his prospect stock stock for sure. Uh, the first couple of years, he was coming off a 20 homer season at Class A Advanced. That that's in the Cal League, but still uh, pretty well known. And I remember following him that year at 2012 at Double A and thinking like, well, he's not really putting together a decent season here. Uh, let me read you out his numbers there at Double A. He hit 285, had a 337 OBP, a 428 slugging percentage. Uh, a WRC plus of just 110, so he's about 10% better than the the average offensive player in the Texas League. Only hit 12 homers in 134 games. Now, the Texas League is definitely more pitcher friendly than the Cal League. Definitely more pitcher friendly than playing uh, at Colorado's Coors Field. Um, but it's just it w- it was a teachable moment for me because I remember thinking, okay, Arenado probably doesn't have it with the bat. And even Tyler, you remember this, like his glove was even a little bit of a question earlier. Yeah, that was the, that was the big question. There were thoughts of, well, do we move this kid to catcher? It doesn't look like he's going to hack it at third base, which is so comical to think about now. Right. So even, so that was 2012, 2013, he debuts in the majors, plays 133 games for the Rockies. Again, only 10 homers had a 77 WRC plus the bat, the glove was certainly good enough. He was worth about two wins that year. Um, but then really kicked it into gear in 2014 and then took off with 42 homers in 2015. So it's just a, a nice memory of, hey, you don't have to dominate every minor league level before you make the majors to be, you know, uh, one of the best at your position eventually. Uh, development continues in the majors. It, it is not just a you show up and you are a fully formed product. Uh, you have to continue that development once you get there. And if there are some stumbling blocks, it's not the end of your career by any means. So if you have a favorite prospect who here in 2021, maybe doesn't come out of the gate the way you expected, or doesn't have a season that you were expecting, uh, doesn't mean the end of his career. It's a teachable moment. They can move on from that. The prospect, this kind of reminds me of just a little bit. I know it's not perfect, but Royce Lewis is 2019 Uh, We all agree was a rough year for him. He didn't seem that upset by it. He said, listen, there were a lot of things I was going to take from that and put into 2020. We'll see that in 2021 at at last. But um, just because of one down year does not end a career by any means. And Nolan Arenado is a really good example of that.
You know, I had um, somebody very early on in my baseball career, and I know this is a, a pretty common phrase, so it's not something that was unique to, I think it was Ronnie Richardson, who was the uh, the assistant director of player development with Atlanta when I first worked uh, in the minors back in those days. And, and Ronnie said, development is not a linear track. Player development is not a linear thing. Um, and I think, you know, if, if you're a Rockies fan, you're looking for a silver lining. Um, you look at somebody like Ellerith Montero, 2018, I think people really thought, oh, that's a top 100 guy in the making. 2019 struggled with injuries, a broken hammock bone, missed a couple of months, really struggled at double A, very young for the level. Um, so I don't think you can necessarily look at that and think, well, what are they getting in this guy? Um, it's not linear. And I think that's, uh, that's something that we can all apply to our own lives as well, not just in a baseball development context, but uh, you're going to have your fits and starts and, and circle back and uh, have to rework things and polish stuff and all that. Um, it's not always going to be a straight line trajectory. And uh, it's one of the most fascinating things about baseball. So um, uh, Godspeed to Nolan and uh, <laughs> you know, we'll, we'll try to carry on out here. Not gonna be not gonna be easy or fun. But that's it. We'll wrap up this week's episode of the show before the show. He's Sam Dykstra. I'm Tyler Mon. We will talk to you next week.